I love cooking. Like years ago, cooking was a very serious thing and it was very regimental. And now it's more, it's more about the fun and the people you work with and having a more patience with everything these days. It's, it, I think it's really great where the industry's at at the moment. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Given the global nature of food and restaurants, one can become a talent of many cuisines. After years of working in different kitchens with different techniques and ingredients and in different countries too, how does the breadth of experience affect someone's cooking style? Kim Marie Moore is the executive chef of Oko Restaurant and Oko Rooftop Cafe in Melbourne. Kim Marie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. It's good to get you on the show. You've um, you've done many things and many cuisines in your uh, career. Um, what are you doing at the moment, though? At the moment, I'm cooking at a Mediterranean restaurant in Fitzroy. Um, so that's sort of we're across sort of French, African, um, Italian, Spanish. You know, all of Mediterranean, I guess. Tell, tell us a little bit about the venue and the offering and the sort of um, some of the dishes that you're cooking there. Uh, so at Oko Restaurant, we're primarily a nighttime restaurant. Um, we're doing a sort of feed me kind of thing. Like at the moment, we're like cooking beautiful um, Valencia pork belly, and that just comes with like a beautiful smoked pork hock Um We've got these beautiful uh, Crystal Bay prawns at the moment. We're just doing with paprika, garlic and wine, the old Spanish way. A bit of octopus, like if you're vegan at the moment, we've got cabbage rolls, things like that. And what we sort of base it off is like medium plates. So if you come and have the, the banquet or feed me as such, you can get seven to ten dishes basically across our menu so it's, it's a pretty good way to eat. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the cafe as well is that treated quite differently to the restaurant? No we sort of we wanted to keep that same sort of Mediterranean vibe so the breakfast like you won't just get your normal scrambled eggs we do it like a harissa scramble um, so that Mediterranean th- theme has sort of crossed through to there. It's, yeah, it's pretty delicious down there. The, and the the um the the cafe down there they're attached to the Rose Street Market, so it's it's quite a day out if you know if, if you're up for something a bit different, eat at the cafe, go travel around the markets. It's pretty fab. That sounds amazing. Um, you've you've done so many things in your career and so many different cuisines as well. I wonder if you could take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play for you growing up? Um, for me, I guess food was always a big part of my life through my father. He was obsessed with food, and being a businessman, he sort of he ate out a lot. So then he would come home on the weekends and take us to all these like amazing restaurants. Um, for dinner and what have you. So I think with him and his food obsession, it sort of like caught on with me. And we used to do um, a lot of cooking classes together. Like, yeah, we'd go out and do – my dad didn't come from a cooking background, obviously, he's a businessman. But um, 
we go and do Italian cooking classes or Thai cooking courses at the local school or what have you. Um, yeah, it was pretty fab. When did you first sort of get an inkling and decide that a career in food was for you? It was quite funny. Like I was in living in Western Australia at the time um, and I actually went there to sort of work in a bar and at that time it, it wasn't really a great time in Western Australia to be working in bars. Um probably won't get into that conversation <laughs> but so I entered an ad um to do with like doing a chef's course and I went and did that and it was sort of it was an awakening for me it was like oh my god this is what I've been wanting my whole life because before that like I never knew what I wanted to do I tried my hand at everything like you know um and once I got into doing that course and working in the industry, it just became an obsession. In, in those early years, were there any sort of really influential people that helped build your career? Uh, yeah. So I used to go to like um, – it was a cooking school much the same as like CIA in America. So you would go there five days a week um, and it was kind of like a full-time job. So my chef there – um, he was pretty sort of pedantic kind of guy. So for me, he became like sort of like an icon quite quickly. And then from there I sort of went to work at um, – so I was doing the college five days a week and then I went to work as a head chef at a Greek and Italian restaurant. Um, wow. Yeah, and then in, on my days off I, I would – uh, wash dishes at a Mexican restaurant and then if you can believe I had spare time after that I'd go and do more courses at this college um, so I think those two men were pretty influential to me um, in the beginning of my career um, Costa being Greek he, he was everything had to be like his mum like if you didn't do it properly you would have to do it again and if that took 10 times then you did it 10 times <laughs> until you got it right you know so he instilled in me quite um, I don't know how you would say like the skills I still use to this day like perfectionism I guess when did, when did you um, first leave um, Western Australia and embark on this sort of global journey that you've had with food? Um, it would have been through, it was three, 30, 30 years ago. So I went, I went from Western Australia to the Northern Territory and worked there for a year, um, which was quite fun, out in the desert. In the middle of nowhere in a resort. <laughs> um, and then I went over to Indonesia, sort of cooked around there for a little while. Um, and I think there sort of ignited my passion for um, Asian cookery in a sense. And then I moved back to Brisbane where I was originally from. Um, and just embarked on my career from there, really. Take us back to Indonesia for the moment. Do you, do you have any sort of food stories of the influence that it had on you from, from your time there? I think, and it's probably still with me today, the, uh, the obsession I have with pork. 
um, they used to do this amazing, um, it was like a whole uh, pig that they do over an open fire and you would baste it with like a coconut water and palm sugar um, all day long you'd be cooking this thing and then eventually what happens is the skin goes into like it's a pork crackle candy and then so this whole restaurants were like that where you, they would serve that and then it was about all the condiments that would go with that, the fiery condiments, salty, sweet, you know, it was beautiful. You mentioned that you ended up back in Brisbane. Um, t- tell us about sort of the uh, your journey as a chef and sort of, you know, what the key sort of venues have been for you as you started to build your career. Yeah, um, I think... <clears throat> the thing for me in Western Australia, it was more of an eye-opening experience because we didn't have suppliers there in those days. You went and hand-picked your ingredients. So if I wanted to get scallops and things like that, I'd go down to the fish um, monger at, or like, you know, next door I'd use the Sicilian butchers for all my meat. So it was, it was more... Um, going and purchasing my products but learning at the same time because I'd have the butcher next door, Nonna, telling me, no, you cannot use that meat. You have to use this one. This is the one we are using. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. Um, you know, and then I'm moving back to Brisbane. I sort of had a little bit of um, a sort of, I don't guess, an identity crisis because everything came from a supplier and all that sort of thing. So I had to readjust how I came about getting groceries into restaurants. Um, I think a big place I worked when I first got back to Brisbane was Tongue and Groove restaurant. Um, That was pretty big back in the heyday. It was sort of the rock and roll spot where all the bands would hang out, like Powderfinger and all that. Um, And from there... We got into doing rock and roll catering where we did like, yeah, it was excellent, where we did Livid Festival, um, the Big Day Out. Um, we did some like Summer's Day, Vibes on a Summer's Day, and then that went more into individual artist catering, so Jamiroquai, Chemical Brothers, Incubus, like so much fun. It was so rock and roll. Um and that went on for a couple of years. We did that through that restaurant and then that all finished up and I think, again, I was left a little bit identity crisis. Here I was in the midst of all this fabulous rock and roll world and then I've got to come back in the kitchen and, okay, let's we're cooking now and that's that. <laughs> well, well, I... I want to stay in that rock and roll world for a little bit longer here because you, you, you rattled off some amazing um, bands there. Do you have any stories of the food that you cooked or the interactions that you had with some of them? I think with the um, Big Day Out, it was sort of, I think we were the first ones ever that set up an actual restaurant and bar um, backstage. Before that, it was just probably a creepy tent off in the corner feeding everybody. Um, so we, we set up this like massive big restaurant where they could come and see, um, like, I think we had the guys from, um, what was it? I can't even remember their names now. Um, oh, Daniel Johns. 
he he was very pedantic and he wanted us to like microwave his food for him because he wouldn't eat from um I guess any like food catering at these gigs and stuff and um, our microwaves at the time weren't working so we had to actually say sorry <laughs> you're not going to get what you want for once <laughs> and then we had the guys from prodigy come in and they were like all cockney accents and hilarious and like bleeding noses like it was because they'd had a fight with um a guy from another band because they loved the girl from that band and it was just like you were in the thick of it like it was hilarious and I think the the best part of doing that was when garbage came on stage one night and I cooked about 200 300 steaks that day and I was just like had grilled fatigue and as soon as I heard the first licks of their song I just put my tongues down and went that's it and off I went and stood on the stage <laughs> and I listened to their set and then went back to my cookery so that, it was pretty fun like that you know that is extraordinary. Yeah. How did how did you find sort of your path after coming out of an environment like that? It was a bit of a come down, you know, like you have to come back to just normal reality. You're, you're working your normal restaurant hours, nothing exciting is happening. I mean, it is, but not to that extent. Um, and you, I guess you just have to recenter yourself after that and get back to doing what you're doing, being a, a head chef, you know. Take us on that journey because you've, you've worked at so many restaurants and, and uh, you've been particularly in Melbourne as well. What's been the real standouts as you as you sort of built your career? Um, in Melbourne, I, I moved down here to work at Movida. So that was pretty fabulous, of course. Um, I worked there for a time but – because of moving state and I moved on my own, I was pretty broke, like broke chef <laughs> sort of scenario. Um, and I had to move on from that job, not because I wanted to, but it was just more a monetary thing. And I worked, um, I ended up on Sydney Road at this fabulous restaurant called Robbie Stein's. Back in the day, it was pretty huge. Um, so I worked there maybe two or three years and that place was pretty fabulous. Like we, again, went to the markets and bought our produce. We didn't use suppliers, so I re-found that love. Um, and from there I went um, into cooking at Seamstress, I think it was, um, and that sort of brought me full circle back to my Asian cookery because there's always been – parts of that in my career and where I've worked there's been you know dishes on menus that sort of lent more towards the you know southeast asian side and that probably was the first job that I got that was just all about southeast and southeast asian cookery um so that was pretty fabulous um where else do I have been oh, too many jobs to remember I opened a restaurant called Chow City. That was pretty great in the city. Um, Bother Ambo, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. That was in Richmond, that restaurant. It was Southeast Asian. Like, but that was a tanker of a restaurant. Like, there'd be a two-hour lineup out the door every day. It was just ridiculous. 
Well, I find it, that's why I find it interesting these days you're cooking um, Mediterranean and many of the countries within that, you're finding influence. And much of your career in Melbourne has been a real sort of heavy tilt into Southeast Asia, whether it was Seamstress or Happy Palace or Chow City. Tell us about your food through that period and maybe some of the dishes that really stood out that exemplified sort of your dive into that Southeast Asian cuisine. Yeah, um, I think... Starting with like Happy Palace, that was a fun restaurant to work with. Um, that was just Chinese, um, sort of tongue in cheek, like a little bit of a theme sort of restaurant. Um, we did some cracker dishes there, like always like Mapo tofu, because I'm I'm pretty big if I'm cooking Chinese food into Sichuan sort of cookery. Um, we had this outstanding. Westlake beef soup that we did there. Um, well, the Enbo, it sort of came more into uh, Thai cookery, a little bit of Vietnamese, um, <clears throat> you know, like seamstress was about more Southeast Asian and same like Chow City. Uh, and also Red Piggy I worked at opened probably just before the pandemic hit. I opened a couple of restaurants like Red Piggy and then Thai Tiny down in the Docklands. And then I left that job and I think for me, um, I went away on a holiday for the first time ever in my career and I came back and the fires had hit and then um, the pandemic was slowly making its way through Chinatown um, and places were closing and no one was going there and then the it actually hit and it kind of it um it stopped all asian restaurants probably for the next 2 years hence probably why i'm now doing mediterranean but i think my my influences in asian cookery is always comes back to pork i'm obsessed with it like pork belly pork neck pork shoulder you name it I've got it on the menu. Well, tell us a little bit about that. What are some of the dishes that you do utilising those sort of different cuts given that you love it so much? Um, I think pork belly has been a labour of love for me. Coming from Queensland, you know, you've got the beautiful, famous Bangalore pork up there, which is just an outstanding product. Um And I think over my entire career, no matter what, sort of cuisine I've had always it's sort of been a labour of love of perfecting pork belly over the years I'm still to this day now that I'm in Mediterranean I'm doing porchettas and things like that but you know there's a common sort of denominator in all of these sort of cuisines where they do meet in the middle at a point because you know you've got the spice trail that went through Europe and, you know, the Middle East and there's there's so much commonality between dishes, you know, um, oh, and food in general. So now I'm at Mediterranean, there's so many t- 
techniques that I've bought from my um, Asian cooking side in that I would wouldn't ordinarily bring into Mediterranean cooking, but now I I do. So you know my understanding of sweet, savory, salty, spicy has brought a, a bit a different dimension to what I do now, as opposed to maybe what I would have done fifteen years ago, cooking Mediterranean. Is there a dish or two that sort of is in your food at the moment that exemplifies that, that could sort of um, speak to that for us? Uh, I would probably say, here we go again, my pork belly. (laughs) 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 So my techniques in cooking there is the same that I would do whether I was doing it in the Thai version or um, like Chinese way or whatnot. So... And, but but then you've got to use, you know, your spices from Mediterranean. So that's, I guess, the difference there. Um, <clears throat> Can you give us the sense of uh, what is that technique that you use? So I do this thing where I, I, I kind of braise and roast the pork at the same time. And that's over probably about five or six hours that it slowly cooks away. And, it, and it's skin side down. So you're kind of cooking the skin, um, you're rendering all the fat out and then when you come to take it out and, you know, you set it in in the fridge and then you cut it up. So when you put the pork skin um, into oil, it just is like popcorn. It, it just It's like chicharron on a pork, basically, like, you know. A, a couple of times now, you sort of uh, raised the real importance of connecting with producers and and the reliance of restaurants on um, suppliers and trying to negate that to the best of your ability. What's the benefits of that connection with the producers for you? I think for me, it's it, it, you can speak to right to the um, the butcher, say like the one I'm using at the moment. They only sort of get their produce from small farmers. So they've really got their finger on the pulse of how that animal's been treated, how what it's eating, you know what I mean? And you can handpick how if you want grass-fed beef or you want grain-fed or it's only been 120 days on grass or, you know, that massively changes um, flavours and stuff like that. And it might not necessarily fit within your dish so it's good to be able to speak to people um so and I have a quite a close relationship with my suppliers I've used them throughout the years over all the restaurants that I've worked at so there's also that connection of them knowing the things I guess as a chef that I like um and they come to me with new products because they know I'm always interested in that so uh, that's pretty great to have as a chef, you know. It's not just a transactional thing where you just purchase, do your order for the night and that's that. You mentioned how much your cooking has changed as a result of the pandemic and um, you've now delved into the world of the Mediterranean. There's been many people affected in the last couple of years by COVID. What, What sort of impact has it had on you? For me, I think because as I was saying, like for a period of time, so many um of the Southeast Asian restaurants and that, we're doing it pretty tough over COVID. Um, COVID brought probably the worst out in people in that sense. So 
I guess at the end of that when it, you could go and get jobs again because for the first year there was there was no hope of me getting a job. So I had to do this learn to relax thing, which is so far out of my scope, <laughs> you know. And then when it came time to, okay, I've got to go and get a job again, um, there just wasn't anything around. So I thought, well, why not lean back on, you've done a million different cuisines, just lean back on, you know, something you've done before. And, yeah, that's where I've ended up here at Oco. And it's been pretty great to sort of revisit those ingredients that I haven't used for so many years, you know, like saffrons and all that beautiful thing you know well you've built a, an amazing career and doing great things there at Oco. um wh- what do you love about what you do um i think that it, no two days are the same it's hard work like i like the um structure the continuity of being a chef the organization it sort of it fits within my personality like I'm a Leo so I like to be the center of attention I guess and <laughs> being a head chef <laughs> that that sort of plays well into that you know and it's it's fun I love cooking like years ago cooking was a very serious thing and it was very regimental and now it's more it's more about the fun and the people you work with and you know, having a more patience with everything these days. It's, it, I think it's really great where the industry's at at the moment. It seems like we're in a position where we're leaving COVID behind us to some degree. Do, do you see yourself down the track moving back into the Asian side of cookery that you'd love? Oh, that's always in my, like, my headlights. It's a, it's a deep love I have and it's it's hard to give up. You know, you, you sit there chopping away at, at work, reminiscing about, oh, when I was cooking this, and, you know. So most definitely I will revisit that in the future for sure. Whether that's I go work for someone or I open my own venue, who knows? Like, who knows what the future holds? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would love to see that happen at some stage. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear a part of your story. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.